So Pime mentions that uh, they used to do martial arts mm -hmm. and is bringing up the metaphysical effect, aspect that your mind can do more than your body is able to. Ooh, Qigong. And that's that's a, a major strain that runs through a variety of different martial yes. arts uh, training programs. Do you? we have any evidence for this at all? That the brain has a big effect on the body? Well, I guess ultimately, yeah, yeah I guess that is what it is. So, or mind over matter? Yeah, mind over matter. For so, sure. a guy named yeah. Brian Dunning does right. a podcast called Skeptoid. I will tell you that. Uh, is this the guy that the Dunning Kruger effect is named after? Nope. Oh. A lot of my friends um, find Brian Dunning sort of a bull in a china shop, but he does really good homework. He's actually an excellent journalist. And he mm -hmm. looked into the, uh, the kid who lifts a car off his dad stories, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and what he. And his sources are all on the site and so forth. I wouldn't be able to do them off the top of my head. But he made a pretty compelling case that an untrained person can get about a 30% boost in strength uh, if they're motivated by things like panic uh, over mm -hmm. a loved one or fear of imminent death or something. Mm -hmm. A trained person gets a smaller bump because they're used to dipping further into their reserves in the first place. But um, in his opinion, nobody gets superpowers. Uh, in martial arts, uh, when I used to do them a lot, I would, would break cinder blocks from time to time by punching them. That looks unreal. Right. And there are mm -hmm. a lot of stunts that look unreal, like getting a uh, cinder block broken on your chest with a sledgehammer mm -hmm. or um, stopping a sword cut so it cuts the watermelon but not the person beneath it. But the stunt nature of these is pretty well worked out. Mm -hmm. The um, cinder block punching is not a stunt. But it is basic physics. You can crank the numbers and you can see how it works and stuff. So, now I never was like a master. I'm not a martial arts master. But I came away not believing that martial arts can give you powers beyond what the body itself was already capable of. But it can coordinate you in a way that can take you past what you thought you were capable of. And anybody who observed the Olympics can see that the human body is capable of a lot of amazing things. And if I tried to attempt, say, the half pipe, I'd just be dead. That'd be the end of me. Right? Yeah, I mean, there are people who can do incredible things, like, mm -hmm. like high jump over an eight-foot bar or listen to rap music. What? <laughs> Feats of endurance. Yeah. Okay. Stoicism. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. We have a, a quote from Hunter S. Thompson. Nice. Music has always been a matter of energy to me, a question of fuel. Sentimental people call it inspiration, but what they really mean is fuel. I have always needed fuel. I am a serious consumer. On some nights, I still believe that a car with the gas needle on empty can run about 50 more miles if you have the right music very loud on the radio. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Hunter S. Mm -hmm. Thompson was the <laughs> keynote speaker at my very conservative medical school's graduation. Wow. wow. That's incredible. opening That's cool. line was... After recently getting a uh, prostatectomy, instead of going, I instead of coming, I go. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Love it. <laughs> that is amazing. Uh, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it just seems wrong to get back. to bring this back to. Uh, I know. The I know. Journal. We've got so such not, a not great. Exciting. Uh, we've got such a good conversation going. I mean, we can keep yeah. coming back to it. You know. So anyway, this so columnist did this randomized controlled sham trial. I think that the results are on the next slide. Mm -hmm. So yeah, 131 patients. Oops. And if you look, oh, Oop. that Maybe. was the hypothesis. Okay, well, that they would have less pain yes. right, with the actual procedure compared to one month out the controls who got the sham procedure, and they they had to reject their hypothesis because they found no difference. None. Both groups showed immediate improvement in pain and disability after the procedure. And this improvement was sustained at one month. So in other words, they both worked. Now here's the deal. With that internal memory ligation thing, as soon as that paper was published, no one did internal memory ligation ever again because it didn't work any better than placebo. In this example, they showed that both worked, kind of like the internal memory ligation study, but the results have been different. People still get uh, cement vertebroplasty because it works. Well, did it work better than the placebo? No. No. And I think that the next slide shows that. 
bunch of different bunch of different me- bunch of different metrics. Well, I agree with you. So this is a, this is something I think we're, worth debating because in general, when you do an FDA trial and you have a new medicine to treat, say, migraine headaches, and you want to treat it against the placebo, which isn't exactly how we would do this, but if your new agent didn't work any better than the sugar pill, then you would not accept it. It would not become a treatment, and we wouldn't do it. It wouldn't get paid for by insurance. So what I'm amazed by is that even after wow. this trial, that David Colney's still does this procedure on people, even though he proved that it doesn't work. <laughs> so the guy who invented it, yeah. very much to his credit, yeah. then went back and did the RCT that was needed to determine whether it was placebo. I feel like yeah. most people Found probably out, don't yep, do that. It's placebo, mm-hmm. and now he's still doing it. He does it. If you, if you get a compression fracture and you go to the ER, it will be covered by your insurance. Wow. There's all this stuff. I mean, looking, yeah. so these are showing a whole bunch of different outcomes. You've got a comparison between the solid black line, which is actually having the procedure done, versus the orange dotted line, which is control, aka nothing. Um, and they're on top of each other. Right. The thing that, the, the one that is probably the most nearly significant is opioid use. And interestingly, the... Uh, this is the one on the very bottom. The control results in more reduction in opioid use so than the, but that had to the be other one, yeah, than you, the actual procedure. Yeah, so if you test enough things, it will get some divergence sure, in at least yeah. one And it's still variable. not significant, mm-hmm. but it's closer. Yeah, but I think so. that's... So here, I think here's a take-home point. If you do the cement or no cement, they both are equally effective placebos, and they actually can result in pain relief and a reduction in opioids. If you compare that to something which has a great biological mechanism, we know about the mu receptor and how the opioids you know, are agonists and result in pain relief, and I observed this in my patient yesterday who got morphine. We know how it works. We understand the science behind it. It's, we can say this is a fantastic and wonderfully validated therapy, but I think in this example shows that we'd be better off treating our patients with a placebo than giving them opioids. Well, this opens up two gigantic cans of worms. Mm-hmm. One is the um, general concept of biopsychosocial medicine. Uh, I often hear people say, why don't doctors understand the mind-body connection? Who do you think mm. discovered it? For us, it's a nuisance effect because placebo makes our RCTs so much right. more difficult. Yeah. But the other, which I had understood to be a, uh, a central topic today, is ought there to be more sham surgeries? And I'll right. say it differently. I believe your thesis is, yes, there ought to be. But I prefer to phrase it as a question because there's an ethical discussion to be had there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could totally see the argument that um, doing some sort of sham surgery might have some beneficial effect on the patient's well-being, but I could also see that surgery might introduce the possibility of more negative outcomes like infection or just any normal outcome that could come out of having a surgery that you don't necessarily need. And I would just say that there are very, very few sham surgery trials that are being done. Sure. There's the mammary artery one. There's this one. There is one that looked at arthroscopic surgery of the knee that also showed that it doesn't work. And that's a very, very common procedure that lots of people have. And it doesn't work any better than the sham placebo thing. Mm. And so, you know, you can, you can take different lessons from this. You can, you can conclude, as David Colmes does, that we should still do the procedure because it quote-unquote works. So or, or you conclude, or you conclude that you shouldn't do it at all, and I think that I would kind of course a middle ground, which mm. is that we need to understand the placebo effect better. Yeah. And I think it's unethical since it is so powerful that we don't understand it and we don't teach it to our residents and we don't take advantage of it. We don't harness the placebo effect in a really effective yeah. way. Yeah. A couple really solid points here. So Pima just mentioned in today's world of lawyers and just generally litigious people, mm-hmm. I would say the thought of sham surgery is laughable only because it's a can of worms that's just waiting to explode, which I totally see that argument, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if that, you that's find That's why there out, aren't too many of these studies. Right, like if you find out you're having this whole surgery, you're paying for it and it's not necessary at all, even though you might actually feel mm-hmm. better afterwards, like that that is well, kind you, of a lawyer's nightmare or perhaps mm-hmm. a field day depending on which side it could go either way <laughs> so um, sham surgery would happen in in this discussion yeah. in two different contexts right one is 
if it's part of an RCT, a randomized yeah. controlled clinical trial, which is, I think, is what we were intending to talk yes, about. Yes, right. We're not in that case, you wouldn't be for paying for it, and you know you might be randomized to either arm. Sure. So you are honest with the patient, and right. in a thing called the uh, Helsinki Declaration, there's an international agreement about the rules for this exact kind of mm -hmm. study. Mm -hmm. um, the other would be, though, what if I just pretend to inject some putty into your vertebra right. because pretending to will make you feel better. But right. for that, I have to charge you as if I'd done the real thing right. because otherwise I'd give the game away. My professors, mm -hmm. whose work would have now been about 50 years ago, said that there was a time when this, was, this kind of thing was very commonly done because everybody mm -hmm. knew that it worked. Mm -hmm. But it was because you had to charge patients for it Mm -hmm. Like if you sent them to the store for Obicalp, which apparently they actually used to write. Really? They would get sugar pills, but they had to pay for them like they were real pills. Well, I mean, yeah. think about it this way. Or else it, you know, it didn't work. Uh, a monthly placebo that happens all the time, birth control pills. <clears throat> the, the actual period week of a normal birth control pill on most of them, not all of them, but most of them mm -hmm. is just a sugar pill. Yeah. But it's just to kind of maintain your schedule of taking yeah, I a thought pill that was every for day. Timing rather than yeah, just it's just people. to make. It's not necessarily fooling you, but it. I feel like it's not necessarily. But you don't have totally to take common it. knowledge, right? You don't have to take it at all. Right. There's literally no reason for you to take it. It's just to maintain mm -hmm. the schedule, and the whole point of that is that it's the absence of the hormones that you're taking that's actually giving you a period. If you don't do that, then theoretically you just wouldn't get a period. And that's Although, why you have the... Placebo might work. My wife changed all of mine out for sugar yeah. pills and still. No. There you go. <laughs> uh, you haven't got pregnant yet. That's nice. I, you know, honestly, I, I wonder if, if that isn't common knowledge because I think I know it. Like, for me, it feels like common knowledge, but... It's also not common knowledge, like a lot of female or male anatomy, for a lot of people. So, yeah. so I, you know, I wonder if it's actually common knowledge that those are sugar pills. So, separating that out for a minute. Okay. Let's take the case where a doc is doing a sham intervention specifically, so you'll benefit from the placebo effect. Which, by the way, for chronic pain problems, I can has think a of some examples likelihood of, of working. Right. Yeah. So you would have paid me, let us say, I don't know what the procedure cost, but let's say $7,000 to do a vertebroplasty. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is that even close to the right number? I don't, I don't know. know. Let's say $7,000 yeah. though. Sure. Right. So I go in and I do a pretend vertebroplasty. So my profit margin on this is, but you feel better. And you already felt $7,000 was a reasonable price that, to feel better. Is that ethical? And I reduced your risk profile while giving you exactly the same odds of a good outcome right. as if I had done the real vertebroplasty. Like, all of this feels wrong to me. It does. But where? What, what part of that was wrong? I know, because ultimately, you know? Yeah. like, your whole goal is to make the patient feel better. And so right. if that outcome is still the same, I don't know. It, is, well, it does feel like a bit of a gray area. I will, I will bet you, but of course I don't know this, but I'll bet you that David Calmes injects just a little tiny bit of cement. Yeah, maybe just a... I bet that's what he does. Maybe, I don't know. So like you just get the, intermediate. the needle in and then nothing and then... And well, to go like, down you the can, You can arm. see the cement on x-rays, so I think oh, that okay. he probably has to inject some. Yeah. To go down the other arm, the paucity of sham procedures mm -hmm. as RCTs for surgical or mm -hmm. you know interventional procedures. Right. I think the idea there is that people feel that the risk compared with the benefit is too great. As if giving people untested drugs weren't just as risky well, quite frankly, I know a lot more about what's actually happening to your physiology right. if I inject, if I do a sham injection or a sham ligation than I do if I give you a brand new drug that doesn't have a track record yet. Uh, I would argue the drug is actually the riskier of the two. Well, it de right. would depend on the procedure. Yeah, sure. You know, if we're doing a, like effects, a pineal gland removal, well, that's a pretty risky no, procedure. We, yeah, but we have to have yeah. a, a real assessment of the risks and benefits. Right. And we need to, we need to have some better understanding of what actually works. To be able to do we that. We probably only have that understanding for a very small percentage of the range of mm -hmm. procedures versus treatments, pr prescriptions, whatever. In medicine, the first thing they tell you, in my school, literally the first hour of the first day is primum non nocre, right. first do more, no harm. Right. The yeah. idea being that a sin of omission is more forgivable than a sin of commission. Sure. That's stupid. The fact is that a decision to act or a decision not to act are both decisions with consequences Absolutely. for the patient. You have this to make the, the decision you think has the best action. odds. Yeah, yeah, the trolley problem. Yeah. yeah.
Do you need to explain that, or will, will um, your viewers know what that is? Maybe. <laughs> it's just Wikipedia. Yeah. Check it out. Wikipedia, the telling problem. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a common thing. <laughs> so yeah, you can do harm by doing something or by not doing something, and that's very, very clear. So where do you... Where do you but I think that we... Thank you I think for those we do sisters, more like. harm by doing things than not by doing things mm. in general. That's my bias. And I'm, I'm sure that I have colleagues that would argue the exact opposite. I'll argue opposite I feel like in you this could way. test that. Yeah. Um, I think we have the sufficient data to mm -hmm. say that even with the medical error rates that the IOM right. has slammed us for and other kinds of issues that have been raised, still fewer people die when they go to the doctor than if they don't, if they have something serious. If you have sepsis, are you going to stay home and bet on evolution fixing your body? But there's, if your wife has sepsis, there are plenty of examples. Will you right. prefer at home? That's now, the, really the better example question. is should you go and get your mammography at the age of 30, or should you, should you get a PSA at the age of 70? Or, you know, those are, those are better But examples. those are specific ones. Yeah. If your overall question is, Overall, is medicine doing more harm or good by its efforts to do no. more? I don't know. That, that was not, that's not how I set this up. That's how it sounded. No. <laughs> I wouldn't do my job if I thought I was doing nothing Fair to enough. harm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, 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 so and I also believe we're on the side of the angels. For I, think that, yeah. I think that we do try to insert science into, the, into medicine and to, into, in our patient care. And the more we understand and know about these things, the better. And so, so I think that there's, we, have, we have no alternative, really, to, to what we're doing at the university. Having said that, there's lots of stuff that we do that's untested. There's lots of stuff where we misunderstand the basic causes of our patient's pain and where we're not taking advantage of things like the placebo effect in a way where we could really relieve suffering. So I certainly agree with you there. There's a lot of, we do way too much of at least some things and we're not, I'm glad that yeah. you're, I am glad actually for like future generations, Joe, mm -hmm. I'm dead serious about this. That you're opening up the conversation about, by the way, where is the stop sign? Yeah. You know, sure. Because well, we'd never have asked ourselves that until right. recently. Yeah. We didn't need to. There's a guy. There's a, a very, very popular emergency medicine critical care podcaster whose motto is maximally aggressive care everywhere. Oof. All right. So I won't, I won't name Oof. him, but you could look him up. And he's really popular. He he has pretty probably the most popular podcast. But I think that my motto. Is, is not that the opposite it's minimally <laughs> aggressive care yeah, yeah. i right. really and i think that the evidence really supports that and i think evolution supports that i think evolution supports that too yeah. my motto is yeah. reproducible outcome testing everywhere there you go like it yeah so that's right that I'm makes sense well, at least it's not yeah. just we all have that's different kind of like not in reproducing the middle. my other motto by the way <laughs> is uh conorismus non more rare which is do your best not to die that's good there you go yeah. i like I that one too so um let's see there's a, another question for Mysteriously, and I mm -hmm. think this is probably the crux of maybe what a lot of people are wondering about the yeah. placebo effect and how it relates to modern medicine. If the placebo is so significant, which I think in a lot of ways yeah. we do have evidence of that, wouldn't more new age therapies show more of an impact on potential outcomes than what traditional medical studies have shown so far? They would argue that they do. Okay. And I would argue mm -hmm. that they do and that they're yeah. milking that for all it's worth and that there right. are a lot of patients mm -hmm. who are benefiting from it. It just yeah. isn't the same as evidence-based medicine, but I, sure. I wouldn't argue they're not benefiting their patients. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, the, the do-no-harm adage is also the flip side of that is help. Mm -hmm. So if you are helping in some way, you are. I think that's another big goal of so, yes. being a physician. Right. So I, I, I do believe this. I think that the, yeah. the patient role and sickness behavior really is a thing and it's, yeah. a, it's an evolved thing. I think that the caregiver role, and that, sure. that may, may have been in a hunter-gatherer group, a family member or I some, mean, some it, re, uh, you know, esteemed relative or something like yeah. that. I don't even think it has to be like sick patient doctor roles. It's, yeah. it's the, like what you just said, caregiver. sick versus caregiver. Yeah. Like, I feel like that might have some sort of mechanism with pair bonding, mm -hmm. perhaps, um, of, of, I mean, we've talked about sociality, so not just within a pair bond, but within a community as well. Yeah. You know, the whole, it takes a village. Thing, one one thing, again, here's a tangent. One thing that I was thinking about uh, there was, in my cultural anthropology class that I took mm -hmm. at Santa Barbara with Napoleon Shagnon, he showed a bunch oh, of some videos. Yeah, we have a whole topic on him. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but he showed videos of the foray, and these are people that live in the New Guinea Highlanders. And one of the things, if you were you know, possessed with a, with a spirit and you were sick, you would go to one of these 
shamans, and he would make a little incision in your chest, and then he would insert leaves that had been dipped in cow manure under the skin, and oh. sometimes even into the chest cavity, and you'd be cured when pus came out. <laughs> and both both sides of this, uh, you know, contractual arrangement were happy with us. Right. You know, so talk about something. So I think, but I think that you know, we th we pride ourselves as modern, you know, modern medical providers as being evidence based. Sometimes though, maybe we're not doing any better than you know, sticking leaves and shit in people's chest. Yeah. I mean, All right, I'll leave that that thought with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sad now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're that bad. But, you know, sometimes I wonder. Yeah. We do do some interesting things to people. I mean, I think maybe an interesting undercurrent here mm -hmm. is is the idea of trust in modern medicine. Yeah, that, that's a good point. You know, you as a patient going to the doctor, you, one, you're going to the doctor. So there is a bit of an assumption there because there are plenty mm -hmm. of people who just don't have any faith in modern medicine or just medicine in general. And they don't go to the doctor for various reasons. So if you go to the doctor, you're already in a little bit of a self-selected group of people. And then you go in, you sort of trust what the doctor has to say, um, or you're one of those people who looks everything up on the internet and, mm -hmm. and actively defies what the doctor says. Um, but ultimately, there is some sort of trust relationship between patient and doctor that makes you believe that what they tell you will happen will, and that you will feel better because of it. And that, that, that's a bit of a, a societal characteristic that sort of plays into, I think, why we have the placebo effect. So if you, right. if you don't necessarily have trust in modern medicine, mm -hmm. would you actually have the placebo effect at all? And, and medicine really is sort of a black box, I think, to a lot sure. of people. Even, even to me, really. Yeah, Some yeah. Some patient will come to me and say, okay, well, who's, who's a really great endocrinologist that I could go to in, at Presbyterian Hospital or something right. like that? And I don't really know. Rated yeah, or, yeah. I don't really know. But they're they want that. They want they want you to vouch you for somebody. Go to the best. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then they're gonna have additional trust when they go and see that provider and that sort of thing. So I'll, I'll tell you what, if the placebo effect works and if part of it is simply just establishing this doctor-patient relationship and giving people advice that sounds authoritative and really where you where someone where a patient feels like the doctor has their back, which I think is a big part of this, mm -hmm. I think that what we do in our emergency room. Um, subverts this and undermines it in a whole bunch of different ways. Mm. Like if you have, if you have to go to the ER and wait for eight hours in a chaotic environment that's yeah. noisy and you have no idea when you're actually going to be taken back to a room, um, and the whole system is designed to make you powerless and take away your autonomy, um, I think that that actually undermines the doctor-patient relationship because the one the one thing which is like the biggest predictor of whether patients are satisfied with their visit to the ER is how long it takes them to see, see a doctor. Yeah. So we know this right. and I, I would guarantee you that if we looked at part of that satisfaction probably reduction of pain and anxiety, sure. the, various, the same things that make you want to go to the doctor in the first place and if you have to go there and wait for 20 hours you're just going to be it's miserable diminished. and unhappy. The and baseline no is just question. Cons consistently yeah. going lower. So I hate lower. it sometimes when I, when I go in, I know that my, the doctor-patient relationship is ruined yeah. because they had to wait for eight hours and they're angry. How do and we fix steaming. that? Well, I think that, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a loaded question. But there's, that's, yeah, there are a variety of reasons. Most of them are outside our control in the ER sure. for why the, why the hospital works the way it works. But I'm saying we don't take advantage of the placebo effect. We right. don't do things that we know would make patients better. And really better. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, we have another really great question from Maven. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about using machine learning in medicine? For example, predicting whether a patient might have cancer using some sort of mathematical model. The yeah. algorithms are getting yeah. better and better yeah. all the time. Yeah. And I would say it's quite likely that within our lifetime, uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of diagnoses, machines will outperform us. Probably. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so we I have... I think our role... Well, I'm sorry. Take it. I was going to say we have we have these now we're, these huge databases that right of we every all kinds of patient parameters that, that go into you know a data warehouse somewhere and that some of these machine learning algorithms I, I know right. there are people that are working on these things yeah. now and you could imagine that when everybody has their Fitbit or their Apple Watch that's getting you know real time health data on people twenty four hours a day mm -hmm. that if if there was a way to safely, you know, collate that information and not have it be diverted to Ukrainian hackers, 
then um, Fair point. We, could, we could actually do some amazing things. Yeah. Are, are, you, are any of you or your colleagues using these kinds of things on a day-to-day -day basis yet, or is it still very much in development? Well, uh, an early iteration of it yeah. would be okay. something like Diagnosaurus. Okay. Where you look up a symptom and you fun. say, what are the things mm -hmm. that can cause this symptom? If you had five symptoms, you could say, what are the things that are on each of these five lists? Sure. Now, the way that we do it is we don't look it up five times. Right. But um, we might look up the major symptom and go down the list to remind ourselves of what some of the possibilities are or something like that. Yeah. Gotcha. But a machine could do exactly that. It could right. look at your six symptoms, mm -hmm. look at all the lists for the different six symptoms and say these four things would account for all of those. Yeah. So why haven't we done that already? Because the machine always spits out the answer saying it's always that. cancer. Well, it's always cancer. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some reasons why we're still ahead of the machines, yeah. but in principle, all of the components of yeah. diagnostic thinking are exactly the kind of thing computers are better at than we are. So it mm. would not surprise me if they leave us behind. Yeah. But it is a like chess, eventually the best machines beat the best human chess players. Or right. AlphaGo. But because yeah. there are so many possible moves, yeah. it took a long time. Yeah. And humans don't play chess by mapping out every possible move. They play chess by recognizing patterns faster mm -hmm. than computers do. Or did. Mm -hmm. I think the same thing will happen with, with AI. So Joe and I probably, well, I won't be replaced by a computer because I get a different gig now. Joe probably won't be replaced yeah, by a computer, a, a but his teacher? kid might be. Uh, it, it probably sure. will be, yeah. actually. We're, we're right on the edge of it. So if most of our jobs can be outsourced to machines, I think this would actually be a good topic maybe for a future. Oh, yeah. You know, so when, yeah. when are doctors going to be replaced by machines? So that'd be, that'd be the, the, I think that's the a great topic for sure. And, and yeah. what will doctors do when machines do replace us? My guess yeah. is we'll still have a role, but it'll be a different one than in the past. I think we should sure. actively resist this. Why? Why? Because I think there's something to this doctor-patient relationship. <laughs> I wouldn't would mind actually being able to spend be... more time on that. I'd like no. to, sure. I would still be on the floor, yeah. actually, if I spent more time with patients and less time with charts. See, right. yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. So maybe that's, mm -hmm. that's what you're saying, where the role changes. It's not necessarily a replacement, but a shift. Right. So yeah. the word doctor means teacher. It's Latin for teacher, right. for example. Mm. So our role might be to communicate the machine's findings to yep. the patients. Or to give them the we do that now the reassurance and the concern mm -hmm. that they need, or uh, some of the procedures are not yet done better by robots, and some right. may not be in the future, and so on down the line. However, you can imagine that as we take on more of the touchy feely and hand off more of the uh, intellectual stuff to machines, we're eventually going to be our own competitors. We're going to become the alter the naturopaths. Yeah, I mean, Maybe. in a sense, yeah. Would we suspect that there would still be a placebo effect if it were machine learning algorithms that were doing the diagnostics? And so I don't I think, I think I think the machine learning algorithms would have to take into consideration that placebo and that evolved sickness behavior mm -hmm. and the capacity of the brain to invent all kinds of symptoms. And I, like I said, I had a patient like this during my last shift. Was it last yesterday? I've, I've lost track of time. But she was complaining of some kind of pain in her side and we went through, actually, we did an imaging study, we did some blood tests, and she asked me something about, well, do you think this could be the stress that I'm under, doctor? And I said, yeah, sure. stress can produce mimics of just about every symptom yeah. that you can possibly imagine. Right. And I explained to her how it's a diagnosis of exclusion, how we did these tests, and now we've reduced the likelihood that she has, you know, she was worried she had cancer. I can't prove to her that she doesn't, but I said, look, the, the likelihood of it's much, much lower after we've done these tests. And I think that she was looking for that human interaction, right. which is why I am hopeful that we're not going to be replaced by machines. Sure, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I can totally relate to that because, yeah. you know, we're, we're all stressed all the time. And yeah. anything that crops up, I'm like, nah, it's probably stress. But sometimes if it's bad enough, you just want someone to maybe just confirm that for you. Yep. Although we used those words before, I don't mm -hmm. actually think we'll be replaced by machines. I think our job will be altered by machines. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I think that... I would love it because we get we get tired. There are downsides to being human as a as a diagnostician, right? We can overlook things. We have our biases, and if we had a Neuralink, an Elon Musk kind of little device in which we were a you know, computer brain um, interlace, that, that it could say it could say, "Hey, Joe, you know, you didn't think about the possibility that your patient has you know some rare disease, myasthenia gravis, or something weird." If it could just prompt you. And then you'd be like, oh, wait, oh, yeah, you're right. Everything fits with that. So the, really, the machine could 
make us better doctors. They could also optimize diagnostic strategies. Right, right now, they're poorly optimized. Mm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Uh, so Mike Sai, who is mm -hmm. part of our larger educational community, oh, Brain Bites, um, programmer, mm -hmm. uh, has worked on a number of software projects with doctors. And one thing that has always stuck out to me was how much time they all seem to spend doing things like data entry. Yes. What a waste of physician time. Right? I'm actually I'm actually paid reasonably well. Yeah. You know, and yeah, so to yeah. pay me to just type in little stupid things in the computer. Yep. What a complete waste. It is. Your mouth yeah. to God's ears. Yeah. It's, it's for real. <laughs> right now, yeah. our high tech solution <laughs> for that is scribes, which is and other human beings being paid to do this because they yeah. make less power than we do. And it's actually a pretty but, good solution. Uh, it's a yeah, it's a great solution yeah. actually because it's a good entry path into like medicine. People yeah. considering it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, That's however, like research too. Like you start right. with data entry, then you the collect, then you analyze. Redundancy you know? of data entry on yeah. charts. <clears throat> Uh, I yeah. guess I can't believe it. No, even right. with scribes, I spent about two hours today after my ten-hour shift yesterday doing data entry. That's yeah, yeah that's Just crazy. Typing things in the computer. I know, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. So we can we go to? Question? I have my thought experiment slide. Oh yes, so yes. Let's imagining go to a world. The, the thought experiment. Uh, we'll have to kind of fast forward through a few yeah. of these. Let's keep going. Keep going. A bunch of stuff to talk about. There this we one go. here. Okay. All right, so here's what I want us to imagine. So ima imagine an alternative universe in which things like pain and anxiety don't exist. So essentially people are not distressed. Um, so there is no, there's no nausea, there's no you know, feeling, there's no you know, body aches of fever, there's no pain, there's no distress. In fact, no one would ever go to the doctor because if you think about the reasons why people go to the doctor, it's because you're under some sort of distress and right. you have an aversive symptom, so that you, you perceive as being unhappy. I mean, every once in a while, someone will just have a big tumor growing out of their chest. It doesn't cause yeah, any, sim <laughs> any symptoms, <laughs> but usually people go to the doctor because of pain right. or nausea or anxiety or something which has alerted them to that something mm -hmm. is wrong. So let's imagine in this universe that in a research lab, someone's made a discovery. They've, they've invented a little, uh, a little pill, and this pill can actually, we'll just say it doubles your lifespan but at a massive cost. So if I give you the pill, you live twice as long, but you suffer. You actually now have pain, and you have depression, you've got anxiety. This strategy got, was used in Catch-22. Yeah. One of the guys right. there constantly <laughs> meditated on the horror of life, and it made him uh -huh. feel like he was living forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this case, it might actually do it. Yeah. So if we think about why it is that pain, the system of pain has evolved, why it is that distress and anxiety have evolved, they've evolved in order to protect us. They've evolved to make us live longer. In, in social species, they've evolved so that I will go seek out counsel from someone smarter than me who knows more about a variety of illnesses and might actually be able to give me the help that I need. And we can imagine how this, this would work in a hunter-gatherer society, mm -hmm. and we can think about how this works now. But in general, I think overall, this is, these are evolved kinds of traits. So our capacity for pain and suffering actually makes us seek out care and helps us avoid danger. And these things really have made us better. And if you think about the opposite, when we block these things, like with opioids, yeah, we can block pain, but we do it at the cost of you know, having someone's lifespan. We have people in the ER overdosing right now in their 20s who would live double or triple in the right. absence of opioids. Yeah. So we've, we, this, this thought experiment, I think, is really salient to our, to our, our lives right now. We could imagine systems that let mm -hmm. us know that we need to do something for our body Without causing distress. I mean, your car's diagnostics do that now. Mm -hmm. right. It doesn't suffer. It doesn't feel pain. And but it makes really, you, you it don't makes feel direct That light flashes on your dashboard and you get anxious. It tells you you need to do something. <laughs> right? But a light that says inflate the tire doesn't cause physical that, pain that to horrible, you. That horrible noise and you're like, oh my God. Well, it caused physical pain to you is a scratch yeah. on your car. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this actually begs the question of the, I guess, curative medicine versus preventive medicine mm -hmm. i mean not necessarily not necessarily curative but responsive i guess where it's in response Pro to something i call it there. proactive versus reactive there you go perfect and we're well, specialists in reactive so, medicine right. but proactive right. medicine is where the action is so yeah. we, we do the most inefficient kind of medicine yeah right I'm, so, I love I what we do, but it's I think not it's where necessary. I would invest the biggest, sure. you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not the most bang for the buck. Things you can prevent yeah. are always better than things you fix. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But in thinking about this and thinking about the evolutionary pressures that, that shaped our cognition and our neurology in ways that have kind of 
form these our, our tendencies to do, do these things. I really do think that these are evolved traits. If you, if you take that point of view, then you can look at the way that the modern medical system has kind of hacked this. And really that with the profit motives and the fact that we're doing these surgeries on people that we know are ineffective, that we can charge insurance for and charge people for. Right. Um, well, all if all we're doing is extracting more money from the system, then that's a, that's a hugely economically inefficient way to do it. Sure. Um, so I, th I just think that these, these raise questions. And, you know, and also, when people go to the ER and we give them a construct about their back, about some mechanical problem that's going to cause lifelong disability, we're inserting an idea in their brain and we can actually elicit pain and discomfort and suffering so we create a symptom that we can because the same story we told them about yeah. having pain is a story right. that we have an alternative story yeah. for that we can charge them for. So without even knowing it, I think that we hack both ends of this system. And we do it in a way, if you look at the U.S. healthcare system, we are actually decreasing the longevity trends and we are increasing the costs. We're a huge outlier in how we do this. So, oh, here, let's yeah, go let's, back, let's go to, back that to that, one, that yeah. slide. That's a good one. This one? Um, yeah. So the U.S. is on the far... I guess it's the right side of that, that curve. Snaps, what's up? So the way that yeah, that, that green small. line, you can see it's, sort of, it's heading down, that's longevity. And then on the x-axis is cost. Yep. So we are spending more money than any other healthcare system on the planet, and we're actually making lives last well, shorter times. You know, part of what I'd say about that, Joe, yeah. is, and you talked about this before somewhat, we wouldn't yeah. go to the doctor unless we felt anxious or pain or something. Mm -hmm. Patients come to us because they have discomfort that they want right. to feel better. Right. As a physician, I will say this has sometimes caused me problems, but I'm much more interested in treating health problems than I am in making people feel better. If you came in with a broken arm, I could give you morphine and your arm would stop hurting and you could go home, but you'd still have a broken arm. Right. right. On the, the other pain hand, is signaling yeah. that if I set that wrong. arm and put a splint on it and give it a chance to heal, right. you get more effective pain relief and you get a good arm out of the yeah. deal. So that's an idea that you have in your head. Well, to and, finish and, the thought. And patients have the same idea. Right. So I think one of the reasons Americans spend relatively more on medicine and get relatively less bang in terms of longevity and stuff is that we're more focused on treating symptoms yeah. proportionately over problems right. than I would like us to I be. I would agree with that. We're, we're all about making people feel better rather than be better. Mm -hmm. Or maybe some of our constructs of disease are actually faulty. That too, I'm sure that's also As with the, the case. you know, maybe there's a whole yeah. variety of things. But that like wouldn't this. be. Why would that be different for us than the rest of the world? I mean, American science is still pretty good science. Uh, I mean, you, you have a good point. Commie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to that idea that you know, people, patients also don't like the idea of masking symptoms. If you tell them, I'm right. going to do something like you're just you're just covering it up. Like they want to get the cat scan. Oh bullshit! They don't like it said explicitly, but they yeah. love masking symptoms. Half of us, okay. in the most pampered culture of all time, in a culture more pampered than King Arthur or King Tut or King Midas could have dreamed right. of, right, right, right. half of us are chronically on medicines for pain and or depression and or mm -hmm. anxiety to tolerate the most luxurious lifestyle yeah, ever imagined. The Sinbad stories don't cover a lifestyle as luxurious as ours. And we need to be medicated to tolerate all that luxury. <laughs> well, shit, they don't like to mask <laughs> symptoms. Okay, good point. <laughs> That's fair. I can't, I can't compete with that. No, That's a, yeah. That was a great rant. For sure. Coffee. But I was going to make the point that, <laughs> that people with back pain, they'll get steroid injections in their back, like, like yeah. little epidural injections, and that it doesn't seem to work as well as the, as the cement thing because the cement thing, you can picture it in your head, how it's stabilizing the bone, you know, making it bigger, and the, the steroids are just masking the symptoms. So, but I, I think I can't disagree with what you just said. I, as it happens, yeah. I won't go into detail, but I have actually two chronic pain syndromes. Mm -hmm. I never take anything stronger than Motrin because I'm yeah. deathly afraid of what would happen yeah. if I ever started taking. Yeah, totally. Uh, and stronger might not be the right word, by the way. Yeah. In, in a lot of contexts, Motrin's every bit as good as opiates are. But um, I'm deathly afraid of what would happen to me mm -hmm. if I took things like benzos or opiates or something like right. that yeah, yeah. in yeah. order to feel better. Right. And if I just chug along knowing that the pain that I feel isn't harming me. It's not representing any damage yeah. to my system. Sure. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. But if I felt like I had to get rid of this, if my life became about getting rid of pain, I'd be a cripple for the rest of my life, and I'm not going there. Mm -hmm. That does definitely feel like a mind over matter situation. Yeah. It's a mind over matter situation. And I think it, it, it is illustrative of the idea that if we try to obliterate or eliminate pain totally, if we did that as a healthcare system, mm -hmm. we would do more harm than good. America, America, listen to me. America, 
listening? There are worse things than pain and anxiety. You can make things worse. Stop it. Do, you, do either of you guys watch Last Week Tonight with Jenna Olver on HBO? Sometimes. No, does yeah. he do this voice? He has a guy in a cowboy hat who does the like catheter commercials, but he, it's the same guy who does the catheter commercials. Oh, now that's a smooth catheter. When that goes in, yes. well, anyway. <laughs> yes, same, like, that's what it reminded me uh, of. I'm going to watch that one. we're done But with he this. has the guy <laughs> make infomercials directed specifically at Trump because they he, he, he actually pays for the ad spots on awesome. Fox during the times that Trump usually watches Fox News. Wow. So that they're like these little infomercials made with this dude that does the Catholic worship. Yeah. And it reminded me just of that. So you need one You need one of those. <laughs> um, okay, so we have a couple questions, right. I think, to wrap up. So we're going <clears> to... <throat> sorry, I'm losing my voice here. Okay, we're going to start with a serious question and then we're going to end with a not-so-serious question. How about that? How should scientists account for placebo effects in medical in intervention studies? It's kind of a. Mm. I, I, I guess that was pretty well worked out <clears throat> mathematically. Well, what would you say? Well, you <clears throat> you look at the uh, improvement rate for people on placebo, and you look at the improvement rate or decrement rate for people who get the actual intervention, and hopefully you have a control group. You didn't do either one, two, and then you use your ordinary garden variety statistical tools to say are these two populations different by a statistically significant right. margin. And is my sample size big enough to, to power the study? Mm -hmm. And can other people reproduce the same result? Mm -hmm. And if the answer to all three of those things is yes, then we say the intervention is effective. Right. The problem is it takes a lot of time and money to get an answer that's that good. So, and, and also that a lot of the studies are funded by people who have a motive. Uh, who are who have motivated reasoning, even if their intentions are good, if they stand to benefit from this answer versus that answer, right. it's, it's still possible to load the dice. And here's something a lot of people don't realize about, um, like journal articles. There's a study that says asparagus will prevent you from having migraines. All right? Yeah. And you look in the article. Well, thank God actually, I have my asparagus. Yeah, I know, a, right? And the article is a great article. I mean, it's a great methodological design. Mm -hmm. The statistical analysis is impeccable. And... It is everything it looks like. And they had a large amount of people in it, mm -hmm. but 200, 300 people, whatever they needed for good statistical power. Mm -hmm. And you're like, wowzers, I guess asparagus treats migraine. What you didn't see was that the study was funded by the asparagus cooperative <laughs> and that they did this 20 times and they threw out the 19 that didn't give them a statistically significant result. Yeah. There is no way to see that right. without a data bank that records literally every negative yep. result. And unfortunately, that's not exciting. Um, right. You, I think, had mentioned the other right. day in our last podcast that you can prove that, uh, you know, the majority of medical studies are false. Let's get. Let's go, let's go to the last slide. Yeah. This is why this positive publishing yeah. bias is why. So yeah. So this guy is pretty amazing. And I conflated yeah. a couple things, by the way. There are a lot of things. The last one. The positive oh. publishing. Maybe bias. I. Maybe I. Uh, Oh, those are ants. Here we go. There we go. This, this is guy. what we're talking about. John Ioannidis is his name. He published this essay, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. This is not to undermine trust in science and in medicine. Right. There's no, you know, it's like, it's the worst possible system except for all our systems that have been tried. And people like him are actually are saying, hey, we need to do things better. And he's making exactly the points that you're saying. We all come with our biases. Yeah. And, and if there are, you know, there's this, this desk drawer problem of, you do the study, no, no result. You stick, you file it away in, in the yep. file cabinet. It never gets published. That's not Whereas okay. Whereas the one that gives you a significant result, you publish, yep. and you find out that asparagus you know, triples your lifespan, right. or you know prevents erectile dysfunction, or prevents migraines. You or know whatever. it would because asparagus, you know, homeopathic <laughs> medicine, right? Um, like treats like. I mean, this is really important for the placebo effect mm -hmm. specifically because yeah. if you've got a thousand papers that don't get published because Pop A is no better than Pop B in terms of treatment versus the placebo, um, yeah. and there's no significant result there. That doesn't get published because it's not exciting or not sexy or whatever mm -hmm. the term you want to use. And that's another thing that could tell us that placebo is actually quite effective at helping. So right. even though there's no difference, it could still be 
beneficial in a sense. Actually, we don't have that information. Cold fusion in the 70s. French guys thought that they'd developed tabletop cold fusion, literally in a glass of water. Wow. And lots of people tried to replicate their experiment, and a few people thought they got positive results. So they wrote those up. Mm -hmm. But all the people who like hooked up a nine volt battery to a glass of water or however the experiment Mm -hmm. was done and didn't get fusion, just said, well, I didn't expect it, I didn't get it, that doesn't seem interesting, and they destroyed it. And so for a little while, all the published studies seemed to be, yeah, you can do cold fusion on your tabletop. (laughs) Um, I wanted to go back to, um, oh, so when people, though, criticize, so we've said a lot of things that are kind of damning about science today, so I want to make a point. Make your point. If you try to get from here to Washington by car, it's going to take you like three days. You can't, it's not like teleporting. You won't get there instantly. So since it can't get you there today, you might as well walk, right? That's the same logic. Science is wrong a lot. Right. But yeah. nothing else is even it's close. It's still the best So if you think taking a car and walking questions. are the same, then you would think science and non-science yep. are the same. But yeah, for totally. the rest of us, it's the best of a bad lot. Hey, we're hairless monkeys. We're working on it. Give and we time. can do it yeah. better. We can improve upon it. So, yeah. yeah. And but we have to be honest with ourselves about some science, of the things you've raised. Ultimately, Absolutely. by virtue of, say this, you know, videocast or by John Ioannidis' papers. Right. Um, and really remarkable things like Calmes' results showing that the surgery doesn't work. Science ultimately makes this self-correcting. So if you end up on the wrong pathway, eventually it'll Thank back. you for that host. I think it's self-corrects. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a really important to make, point to make because we are sort of illustrating a lot of the problems with science. Mm-hmm. And even this article, right, even this article titled Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, in the wrong hands, that headline, which right. is usually what most people read and nothing mm-hmm. beyond that, that headline could breed a whole bunch of distrust in science in, right. in the right person, you know? So yes, I'm not trying to like fuel a conspiracy theory, and this is a, I think that we sometimes have this debate where I may give the impression that I think that everything that we do is mm-hmm. you know, incorrect, and I really you know I don't think that. Here's here's what I think, and this is why I'm so excited by these kinds of things. When we when we discover that that people have made mistakes or they've overlooked things like the placebo effect or like evolution, all that means is that there's this massive amounts of territory to be explored and to make things better. These are opportunities yeah. to improve our lives and to make medicine better. Absolutely. So that's, that's really how I see it. I think a good, uh, I like a podcast mm-hmm. that tries yeah. to balance contrasting perspectives. The right. fact is you and I agree on most things. Yeah. And that's a boring podcast. <laughs> True. I like apple juice, so do I. Well, next topic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we we uh, so Tuarpata. Are we all doctors? I am not a doctor. These two mm. are. She's are like a, like two she's, weeks from. I'm, she's going to be I'm a doctor. A, real I soon. will be a doctor, but not a medical doctor. She's Dr. So. Russ to me. Let's yes. put it that way. Thank you. Um, all right. So we do have a couple more questions, mm-hmm. um, and we did just get a lovely host from Horizon Sci. So we've got a bunch of new new viewers hanging out Great. with us. Um, Let's see. Oh, here we go. Horizon Site just commented, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Right. That's a good well, point. models are wrong because they're yeah. vain. They have platinum hair and fake teeth and rouge <laughs> on their cheeks. And <laughs> um, okay. So we'll wait to get to the silly question. We'll hold on to that. Okay. Thank God we held serious up on that. Ones. Yeah. Um, what do you think about patients challenging the, the medical expertise of their doctors using the Hate abundance it. of medical resources? Just kidding. Is it irritating? <laughs> I think irritating is probably a reasonable word for it, maybe. So I think that I struggle with this. So that yeah. we get people, there's a, really a, good question, there's a national lab here in town, and some of the engineers will come in with their printouts of all of their blood pressures and everything they come in with, and they're like, Doc, you gotta examine this Data carefully. Data are helpful. Right, this, is, this, this proves that I've got such and such condition. And I'll look that's at it and go, helpful. well, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so there is, there's something to be said for our expertise. Yes. Having said that, doctors are human and make mistakes. Sure. And I think that we, we absolutely rely, we cultivate on, um, on this, this patient-centered uh, decision-making. So we do, we do shared decision-making. I'll say, well, we can do the vertebroplasty, or hey, we can give you a sham procedure, right. or I can just give you a trigger point injection. And they may all work equally well. And then we can, we can go through this. So I actually like to have an informed patient 
who can do some of this reasoning, but that's not going to always be the case. And what do you think, Hoppy? When a patient is not in front of me, mm -hmm. I believe that every patient has a way that they understand the world, and if what I tell them uh, is out of alignment with how they understand the world, they have a right to have a discussion with me that brings our understandings into alignment. Right. So I actually, I really do believe that all the way down. Mm -hmm. Yet, uh, when I'm, oh, in a, a moment where I feel like I might lose face, or I have to keep a certain pace going in the emergency room, or I'm dealing with a flat earther, Right. It can test my patience. Sure. But um, so I'm not going to pretend that in every actual real world encounter I'm as Buddha like as I'm describing. But in principle, yeah, I absolutely believe that patients should ask questions until they fully mm -hmm. understand why the diagnosis is what it is uh, and what their role in the management of it is and why I think this is the best management mm -hmm. for it. And I try really hard to achieve that. But there are some times when I have to set limits simply in the interest of taking care of the other patients as well. Yeah. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. And then when I'm uncomfortable, I, if, I'm in a, if I'm not my best self, I may displace some of my discomfort onto the patient. Oh, that mm -hmm. irritating Mr. Smith. <laughs> but it doesn't mean I don't actually believe what I said. It just means that reality and idealism bump into each other sometimes. Sure. And I'll give you another pro tip. So when someone is very, very sick, it absolutely helps to have another family member there you're advocating, asking questions, mm -hmm. trying to figure out what's yeah. you know what's what. I think that having family there is a very very useful thing. Yeah. Bring them in, but yeah. understand that advocating for the sick person does not mean advocating against the caretaker. Somehow it's right. become like an adversarial kind of word. I wasn't saying it that way. Not, no, but it has yeah. in in, in mm -hmm. common usage. Right. And sometimes I find that that uh, can undermine an optimal yeah. relationship. Like great question. Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay. We've got a few. Uh, oh, we've got a backlog of, of alerts coming through here. <laughs> What's in the <laughs> background there? That's me imitating <laughs> something. It's a little gift there. Nice. Uh, let's ignore that. Um, so something we brought up earlier that, that a, a, a newish viewer that just came in dropped their antics mentioned that academia at large only wants to have oh. new, new work published. There's no glory in checking or replicating someone else's work. That's kind of mm, what we mentioned. Problem. It is a big problem. And that's, I think it's a problem we could solve if we sort of provide mm. more emphasis on that, mm. I suppose. I just got totally focused in on what's in the, what's in the red pocket of the guy in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's find, Let's find out. Let's find out. Let's find out. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> but you know, yeah. Perhaps there's something. But hey, there. it's uh, it's very yeah, useful. Yeah, yeah. That's rather nice. All, all sorts very, of things can go in there. Very useful pocket <laughs> yeah. for sure. All, all uh, my and goodies. then another point that that Kingston mentioned, which we've also kind of touched on, what medicine often is ignoring is the cause, whereas we're typically focusing on treating symptoms, which is exactly yeah. what you mentioned earlier. So, good call. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so then we have Turpata. This is a bit of an aside, and feel free not to feel free to not answer this if you don't necessarily want to. Um, but uh, they have been taking Concerta for a year now, and they're wondering what brain effects might be on that. Do you guys know anything about that? I'm not familiar with that drug. And I'm not either. It's an Alzheimer's drug, isn't it? Is it? Maybe. I'm going to say yeah. that uh, that's not one that I'm familiar enough with to All answer right. off the top of my head. It's not one that I prescribe or, you know, I'm intimately involved Oh, it's an ADHD. ADHD. Oh, it's methylphenidate. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, we could have a whole talk and about... And narcolepsy. About, uh, so it's a, it's a yeah, stimulant. Yeah, we should do one on yeah. ADHD. That's a big yeah. topic. Should we do one For on sure. ADHD? Yeah, let's do that. And just about okay. how about just and catecholamines and stimulants in yeah. general. Yeah, yeah. Might, that might be a good topic. That would so be a good one. Stay tuned for that one. Yeah. Okay. So we'll have a, a yeah. more in-depth conversation about that for sure. So what, listen, around. what what I tell patients and what I tell my, my trainees is that nothing is free in medicine. So unless you're talking about the homeopathic medicine to bring it back that contains absolutely nothing, everything that we give that's that's biologically potent can has the potential to do good and also to do harm. So this is true for every diagnostic intervention we do too has a potential for both. So this is why doing more medicine is not always doing better medicine. And for powerful things like Concerta, is that the mm -hmm. name of that medicine? Yes. Um, it is biologically powerful. It has the potential to do both good and bad. 
And so that's all I'll say about that. Any substance that's pharmacologically active yeah. is a poison. The yeah. only one right. that's not a poison is placebo. And remember, placebos can have negative effects. That's true. Mm -hmm. That is very true. Yeah, true. Um, okay, let's see. Um, related to the negative results problem, what do we think about an idea uh, about having a journal of the null hypothesis where people can contribute their there is a national databank that people have been trying to get yeah. started for this purpose. It's a, I think a it's registry a great idea. where people would register their research before they get results, mm -hmm. and then uh, it'll pester them for closure. However, um, only a teeny, teeny, tiny fraction of research so far is going into it. Sure. But it's an attempt to get at that. That's yeah. one way. But there, I think there, there, this idea has been thought of, and that there are journals that say if they will publish any well-designed study regardless of result to really avoid this issue of so of, of people that would the, the desk drawer problem that they don't you know right so it's 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 across the board patients or people that do these studies are less likely to to advertise and publish their results and publishers are less likely to publish them too mm -hmm. if they are null so <clears throat> I yeah. think having a journal that, that publishes null results right. that is actually a good idea. That out. I think that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. yeah. Social sciences right now is actually formally yeah. referring to the uh, reproducibility crisis. Right. Yeah. Yes. They have more, they, now they have more papers that are not reproducible than are. Right. And mm -hmm. it's not because their methodology is fundamentally flawed. No. Uh, although many of the papers individually are, the, the, sure. the fundamental right. methodology of social sciences is pretty tight. It's because of this constant pressure to crank something out that somebody yep. will publish. Yeah, right. The, this is bringing up a lot of fundamental issues with science and right. I think academia in general, not just the field of science. Um, if we can fix those problems, we can make science better. Just to put it on a positive note. Right. Um, is there money in publishing such a journal? Good question. Because I think ultimately that would have probably the biggest bearing on whether it actually comes to fruition. Uh, well, the, the, the people who publish journals now believe that there is not. And I will tell you that my limited journal reading time isn't going to be spent reading negative result sure. after negative result on reproduction of a prior study. Right. And it depends. It depends on how high the stakes are. Yeah. There's there's some for, there's some things for which a null result is really important. Maybe that's where this database idea. It's not is. that it would get read. It's that it would get cited and accessed. Yes. So it's yeah. a database, not a journal, right. that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, right. I think that yeah. makes sense because it's like if you can link results from these eight papers that all reproduce the result from this first paper. Uh, to be able to see that all at one point, so you don't necessarily, I mean, obviously you should probably go look at those those articles. If you're trying to write your own paper, you don't mm -hmm. want to just take the word of the actual database. Right. But Now this would not yeah. solve the problem of intentionally suppressing negative studies Absolutely. until you finally, by statistical right. chance, get like one with a positive result. Like the asparagus one, yeah. right. <laughs> that is not, yeah, that would not solve That's actual solve fraud that. and that right. wouldn't be fixed that way. Totally. Uh, that's a whole other ballgame. Mm -hmm. um, Let's see. Do you guys know much about how much funding PLOS Med gets at all? So PLOS, which stands for That's Public the, Library of Science, yes, they are one of the journals that say that they will publish well-designed studies that, that with null results. Mm -hmm. And it's um, all open source. You actually have to pay to but publish. But the, the model is that the people doing the research have to pay money yep. to PLOS to get their work right. open access for everybody to see. And it's not exorbitant it's something at least can be. plus one is like 1500 bucks well, that's a ton of money depending on how you get published yeah. yeah it's a lot of it seems like a lot of money but in the grand scheme of things that can come out of my the is it sna or something i think yeah uh, but so but for, what if you're from a developing country Oh yeah, that's, it's, totally, that's totally valid exorbitant. point, right? Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sure. so but this gets at the problem that you cannot write rules that people can't game. We need sure. a culture, and we largely have had mm -hmm. yeah. a culture of intolerance for people who game the system of yes. science. And so a thing that people don't understand about science: the scientific method, as I understand it, is not exactly designed to prevent errors from occurring, and definitely not designed to present prevent um, fraud. It was designed to help people who knew they had biases 
to get around their own biases. So the scientific method assumes that an honest researcher is looking for a methodology that will help that him or her right. minimize their own biases to the extent that's possible for hairless monkeys, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't designed to, uh, to keep charlatans out because in the early yeah. days of science, that wasn't as big of a problem as it is now because they were all working for free. It didn't used to be a commercial enterprise. But now careers depend on it, big bucks depend on it, things like that. A lot of corruption has crept in and the scientific method is not designed to address that. that those things need to be addressed, but by other means. The culture of scientists, the fact that you can get blacklisted for life if you get caught doing this kind of thing, mm -hmm. and some heinous uh, penalties attached to uh, federal funding are the ways that we go after intentional fraud. Yeah. And with the point about corruption, I think that we are we scientists are humans, and so anything that can potentially affect uh, you know imperfect humans can also affect science. But I think that we are I think the scientific enterprise as a whole is probably less corrupt than most other domains of human activity sure. because of these correcting and uh, corrective devices. And also, it's quite the um, quite the sport within science to rip each other's papers apart. So if you if you publish a paper with weaknesses in it, somebody is going to find that, rip sure. it apart, and mm -hmm. and get brownie points for that. Science gets its power from doubt. Faith right. gets its power from belief, but science gets its power from doubt. Yes. Yeah, that I think that's. But one the of placebo the effect gets its power from belief, from faith. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> Good point. Oh, just, just to bring it back. Way to Ooh, bring, it back. bring it back. That was so profound. I got all dizzy. And stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's let's go ahead and wrap up with okay. this silly question that I've been holding in front of you for a while. Thank um, you guys for your questions, though. These. Have been yeah, great. this is yeah. great. You guys are they they always blow me away. Mm -hmm. So I'm not surprised at all. Uh, where was it? There we go. Okay. Would you rather, this is a solid would you rather question, fight one evolutionary biologist-sized donut, so a very large donut, yeah. or 100 donut-sized evolutionary <laughs> biologists? 100 donut-sized evolutionary biologists yeah. because they do even more harm than a giant carbohydrate cholesterol. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> Yeah, if, if by well, losing the, the fight maybe you the have to eat the donut. donut-sized evolutionary biologists could actually reproduce. Oh, And adapt and evolve question. themselves. Not after mm. I fight, right? <laughs> yeah, how much time do right. we have for this fight? Are mm -hmm. we looking at intergenerational time scales right. here? It depends. Darwin right? awards it was, it just was, for It wasn't specified in the question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. I have to agree with the, I think I'd rather go with the, the donut-sized evolutionary biologist because Something's, that's, that's a, horrifying a giant concept. donut like that right. is probably going to give us all yeah. diabetes. Uh -huh. So the ultimate killer there. Great. <laughs> um, all right, cool. Let's see. There we go. Someone said beautifully put about the... Faith gets its power from belief. Science gets its power from doubt. There you go. You should trademark that. Copyright. <laughs> yeah. Boop. A copy um, copyright. That's right. All right. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for hanging out. Uh, if we don't have any other final questions. Um, so we will be doing this Tuesdays now. We had been doing it on Friday evenings before Science Happy mm -hmm. Hour. Uh, but we're going to have, um, <clears throat> in the future, hopefully we will have Dr. Coffee Brown joining us many to. times. Great. Um, thank you for those bits, seriously, and for many other bits that were given throughout, uh, and for additional follows. Thank you guys. Um, so, so yeah, thank you guys so much for contributing. Your questions were so so great that I'm never surprised by that anymore because they're always wonderful. We have a really lovely group of people on Twitch now who are kind of pushing this educational outreach type content which is great and it's really really lovely so um but uh but yeah welcome to all the new people and welcome to dr coffee brown for joining mm -hmm. us um and uh thank you guys for hanging out huge bonus so, to have coffee here with us tonight. yeah this was great this was awesome i'm really psyched uh that we were able to do this this is a good topic and there's so many little strains that came up during our conversation yeah. where I we can make more a topics i know topic of conversation yes it's great so many of these things so much, yes much more for to sure come. 
Um, one thing that got brought up earlier was about the the really large antidepressant meta-analysis. Mm -hmm. I think we should oh. definitely talk about that at some point. I thought about mentioning that. Yeah, earlier. yeah, because yeah. um, I read that paper. That's very timely. I was just reading that today. Yeah, I, I've read the paper as well. Mm -hmm. So that would be a really good one. And then talking about ADHD as well. Um, yeah, I think we've got a. So if we just do yeah, something about, say, psychoactive or brain active medications. Yeah, sure. That could be a whole area to explore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good. So stay tuned. We'll figure out what we're going to talk about next week in the near future. Um, if you haven't joined already, you can join us on our Discord server, and that's probably the best place to actually find out what we'll be talking about. Uh, and we typically carry on mm -hmm. uh, more sciencey discussions on there. So. And you can You're also follow us, us on Twitter. Yes. And watch for the special podcast when it's official yes. where we pour champagne on Dr. Rusk. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. When I finally defend my dissertation, yep. <laughs> that'll be pretty fun. I'm actually toying with the idea of trying to figure out how to live stream my defense. I think we should do it. I like, I feel apprehensive about it, honestly. Like, well, that's because that's the nature of being a PhD candidate yeah, is right? to be apprehensive, right? Totally. It's true. That's what but motivates you. I don't know. We'll find out. We'll stay tuned for that. <laughs> um, all right. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for hanging out, and uh, we'll see yeah. you guys next time. Um, I think we should maybe try and find somebody to spread the love to. Um, let's see if we can find a, a, another stream we can jump over to real quick. Uh, who is on right now? Um, ah, we got Kit. We got Kit Boga. Kit Boga is um, a streamer, if you guys haven't seen him, and for you guys, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, Kit Boga is a streamer who uh, essentially baits tech scammers. So he will call up fake um, computer tech repair companies wow. and pretend to be someone who needs their help. And they go through, it's all on a virtual machine. Oh, wow. And they go through and sometimes are actively adding things that go wrong to make <laughs> it seem like there's something wrong. But the whole purpose is to try and scam you out of money for repairs that you don't actually need. Wow. So, And he goes through this whole process, tries to waste as much of their time as possible, and then at the end actually tells them that no, he, he's not actually a person who needs this kind of thing. He's trying to raise awareness, et cetera. Well, he just, he just, so, he just raised my awareness. I, I know, I yeah. I know that was a thing. For sure. So so we're going to host over to, to Kit here. Um, so we, we should all go over there and support him. He is very entertaining. He does lots of voices and stuff. So. Oh, cool. All right. Well, we'll see you guys over in well, Kit's chat. Thank you, audience. And uh, yeah, thanks we'll for joining again. us. We'll see you guys next time.